Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll talk to a neighborhood school advocate who believes Wilkes-Barre Area's consolidation plan for its high schools is not the best path. We'll meet the founder of an area blues festival that's ready to roll into its 20th year this July. And we'll learn more about our area's prominent people and historical structures with a Wilkes-Barre councilman who recently hosted a tour of the downtown that attracted hundreds. The Wilkes-Barre Area School Board has been wrestling with the future of its high schools for several years now. Various plans have been put on and in some cases taken back off the table. In May, the board chose a site in Plains Township near the current Solomon Plains Educational Complex for a consolidated high school for students of Myers and Coughlin High Schools, while leaving GAR students in their current building. Myers and Coughlin are considered to have structural issues, and board members believe this plan is the best possible solution to a contentious issue. Former Wilkes-Barre Area School Board member Dr. Mark Shiowitz is part of a community group, Save Our Schools. They have a different vision for the future. Dr. Shiowitz and group members are advocating for neighborhood schools, which would eliminate the need for expensive busing, allowing children from families to be educated in facilities near each other as they transition from lower to upper grades, and give parents the opportunity to walk to schools, increasing their involvement in the process. We recently sat down with Dr. Shiowitz to discuss the plan he and members of Save Our Schools support. Lay out your case for your interest in the Wilkes-Barre area school district in general. I know you have children who went to the district, but what else did you see and, and how else did you get involved? It probably started with a coach, some coaching activity when I was asked to be a volunteer coach seven or eight years ago with the junior high students. I recognized how important sports were to the children in the district, sports and activities. And uh, then there was some talk about cost cutting and cutting out junior high sports. I thought it was so important for those kids to stay active and involved in positive things, that when there was a controversial uh, school board opening, I volunteered to uh, fill out somebody's term and ended up as a court-appointed fill-in on the school board. And then that got me interested in in a lot of other things that have become prominent now, like school size, number of schools, what fit achievement best, etc. 
When you got involved in this, you must have been aware that there were some structural deficits in these schools, and then there began a conversation about where to go from here. Should the schools be rehabbed? Should there be a new school? In that time frame, what do you remember best? Was your mind open to different possibilities? Were you listening to what that people had to say about it and the professionals? Yeah, I, I had some background from that time on the board when uh, a board member suddenly stood up and, and said, let's close Myers High School. And then I thought, well, how many schools do we need? What's the proper number of students in a school? What is, you know, what is optimal? Uh, and so I did a lot of reading at that time that came in handy now because at this point there is a school board plan to consolidate to either one or two high schools, that plan came because of structural problems at Coughlin, and then some structural, mostly facade problems were noted at Myers, which is stable. GAR was thought to be in pretty good shape. And then they had to come up with a building plan. They had to come up with a building plan, they felt, first, instead of what usually happens, and that is have curriculum dictate your facilities. So they're engaged in a building-first um, sort of scenario, which which is not proper. It may be necessary uh, because of their facilities, but that's the position we're in now. You and I have both been in those schools. There, if you look at the schools, you may think to yourself as a layperson, these schools are a disaster. How could kids possibly go to these schools? And then how would they be motivated to stay in school once you see the condition of some of those schools? How do you respond to that? And in in your research, have you discovered that there can be things done here to bring those existing buildings up to some kind of semblance of order? If if you can look past the unkempt nature of the buildings, because the buildings have not been well cared for, and that's been for many years, uh, you can see their potential. If you're aware of some school restorations that have been done uh, have been done elsewhere, and P.S. DuPont High School, for instance, in uh, in uh, Delaware, where some of the members of SOS visited, uh, there it was a real eye-opener as to what could be done with a school about the si- same size as Myers and the same age. And they did a remarkable and sensible job of not making it a new school, but uh, modernizing it completely, changing out the systems, maintaining many of the features that were, that were good there. So you can see what can be done and has been done elsewhere. But Schools are never built like this anymore, and so when you're looking at schools that are structurally uh, steel and concrete like Myers and GAR with stained glass and granite and marble, they are landmark schools. They really should be on the historic registry, and there is some work being done to see about that. But you see that there is potential for those buildings. Those buildings also, by the words of um, PlanCon, the construction arm of the state DOE, uh, can last uh, indefinitely if they're restored, whereas any new construction, you can only expect it to last uh, for 40 or 45 functional years, and that's with maintenance and upkeep, which has been a, the downfall of our buildings. The cost of this, obviously, is a concern of people, and you seem to believe that restoring these schools is fiscally more prudent. By and large, costs less to restore a school than to build a new. Some of the numbers the district has received from the design team confuses that issue, but PlanCon will tell you, in general, if you can restore, restore. You have infrastructure, you have neighborhood schools, you have the ability to uh, walk to school, you have um, smaller 
enrollments, which uh, usually uh, fit achievement. Uh, and again, you have these longer, uh, these longer lasting schools uh, when, you, uh, when you do that. And further, the, the, um, the track record of consolidation has not been good in terms of operations costs. It's generally, the operations costs generally go up, and that's the main justification you know, for consolidation in the first place. So I think you have to look to the potential uh, of these uh, of these buildings and all the advantages they have. One of your other concerns would be the issue of transportation and I guess time spent busing children and uh, maybe the inability of parents to attend different events that are held at a consolidated school. Can you outline some of your concerns in that yeah, regard? Those, those are great points. Uh, busing uh, puts children on on transportation for a good amount uh, of their day. Uh, A distant school uh, has disadvantages with less participation in school events. One of the the things that experts think can be done to help troubled academic schools, like our schools, uh, is to try to get more parental involvement in the schools. Uh, We have a lot of families without transportation. We have a lot of, we have a lot of poor families. Um, and those who are interested, if we de- design better programs to get the parents involved in the school, to be able to walk to school as their children do, encourages that kind of participation. Whereas if they don't have transportation, the school is several miles away, that's just not going to happen. You also have some concerns about this kind of consolidation based upon extracurricular activities and the opportunity for maybe only a handful of kids to get involved in either sports or debate, the drama club, et cetera, right? Right. Uh, the uh, activities for uh, these students uh, is critical to their overall development, critical to keeping them out of trouble, keeping them engaged. And in fact, uh, athletes and, and uh, those that uh, are active in clubs, when they are active, generally pull their grades up during those periods of time. So so that's that's very important. The statistics on consolidated schools are that there is far less involvement from French club to football, I like to say. So the number of kids that are involved in school life go down. The dropout rates increase. The security problems uh, also uh, increase. The academic achievement usually goes down. These are all known uh, disadvantages uh, of uh, consolidation, and there's there's pretty good evidence in the, in the literature uh, about that. And further, it, it has not saved money. When you look at that model of the neighborhood school, can you talk a little bit about what you think is so advantageous on that from, from well, K to 12? And the structure that you see these these schools going toward under what you would like to see gives neighborhoods a chance to have their individual schools, and it gives kids stability really from K through graduation. Kids seem to do better when there's the least amount of upheaval and the fewer numbers of uh, school changes. So systems such as K through 6 and 7 through 12 or K through 8 and 9 through 12 are well thought of systems where you don't have that transition year. But further, they seem to do better when they can do their schooling in a single neighborhood. And that's basically what we have. Whether it was with great foresight or by accident, we have a situation where in South Wilkesbury in the Heights neighborhoods, there is a campus that involves the elementary school and the high school. Kistler right across the street from Myers, Heights Elementary right near GAR. That's an excellent situation for families. It keeps those students in the same 
neighborhood and stable and off buses and walking to school and with potential for family involvement. What we'd like to see is the same thing develop for the third school, uh, Coughlin. Coughlin's older building is thought to be structurally unsound as now has been stripped. Their students are divided between two buildings. We would like to get them into a single building as soon as practical. And it seems to me that given the demographics of the the district, that an ideal spot would be adjacent to the major elementary center in Plains Township. Building a uh, limited school, a Coughlin there, and restoring the other schools in a staged fashion seems to be the most logical step to take. And that would give that neighborhood a elementary secondary campus as well. How much investigation has been done into making what you say really happen. You say there's this design team and they seem very desirable to build a new school. Have they spoken out over what they think are the obstacles to creating these three neighborhood schools? They seem to think that the costs would be prohibitive to renovate the uh, renovate the schools. The SOS group and, and I take issue with their numbers. All of their numbers seem to be inflated, perhaps not intentionally, but inflated nonetheless. I'll give you a single example that sticks in my craw, and that's $26 million for seismic bracing uh, in the restoration of Myers High School. Now, there's never been an earthquake here. Even if some local uh, code person says to them, you should brace for earthquakes, which is highly doubtful, the type of bracing, according to uh, an expert that that I've come to know, uh, that they've elected to uh, choose in their estimate, is both the most expensive and the least effective. So that that's one figure that bothers me a great deal. In the number they gave for building a new Myers on site, it was considerably less than restoration, which again is contrary to the uh, experience uh, elsewhere. The number they gave for building a new Coughlin uh, in Plains uh, was more than double what Dallas paid for a 1,200-student uh, school built in, the, in their region just five, five years ago with no, with no significant um, construction inflation during that period of time. So they were able to build their school for $39 million, still a lot of money, but way less than the estimate that this group gave. When you talk about these issues at meetings and in other venues, I imagine a lot of people might support what you want. Do you believe that there is a growing support to have neighborhood schools versus building one mega school? I think there's a lot of support, and I think the more that uh, that people hear this message, that that there's that there's evidence and research that suggests the. Uh, advantages, uh, I believe will have uh, still greater support. What there also is, unfortunately, though, is not so much apathy, but the feeling that there's little that one can do to uh, deter a school board that's on a determined course. And and I think that's our job. And do you think that that school board can be deterred at this point? What what will it take? Ideally, those people in the the majority that are... um, running again for office uh, would be replaced. I think that an opportunity to to get people on the ballot was missed, and now some sort of independent run or write-in campaign would be the only way to do that. But that's really the, the most practical way 
to stop this plan. That's Dr. Mark Shiewitz, a former Wilkes-Barre Area School Board member. You can find out more about the group he belongs to, Wilkes-Barre Area Save Our Schools, on their Facebook page. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Anesco Peckman's dream to bring the music he loves to his family farm has become a highly successful reality that is celebrating its 20th anniversary in July. Richard Briggs has loved blues music since he was a teenager helping his father on the land his family has farmed since the 1700s. Now, the Briggs Farm Blues Festival brings together people for four days of peace, love, and music. Kind of reflective of another event that Max Yasger once put together. We recently spoke to Richard Briggs about the popular festival. It's a special place. It really is. Uh, you, you can definitely feel the excitement when you get there, but you can also tell that it's, it is a family farm, you know, and, and, and people are friendly. It's, a very, it's like perfect atmosphere to, to relax and uh, enjoy some music. This farm has been in your family for a long time, right? Yeah, since uh, uh, 1760s. Yeah, my farm, my family uh, settled the farm back in 1760s. So uh, it's a good-sized farm for Pennsylvania. It's 430 acres, and uh, the festivals is pretty much right in the middle of the farm. And uh, so that's that's what we're doing now is we're getting the fields ready for parking and camping and, and getting all the gates ready. So everybody's getting excited just a couple of weeks away. Yeah, this is like your, your personal field of dreams, right? Because this is something that you start, obviously you started it 20 years ago. What was your impetus to put this together? Well, you know, anything, anything like this at this size, this size is, it's, it's a dream, but it's more than a dream. You know, you have to really have the ability to stick with your, your dreams and your ideas and, and keep, keep at it. And this is our 20th year. So we've, we've been able to do that, you know, as a farm and as a family and, uh, it's, it's worked for, for 20 years. So, um, how it started was probably when I was 16 in, uh, 1969. So that was the Woodstock time. And, uh, I was farming with my father. I was helping out in the same fields that we're using now. So that was probably it. And then also uh, I worked for uh, Channel 44 for 22 years. And uh, in production there, I I, I worked with uh, a lot of really good people that know how to put on an event like this. So if there's a lot to putting on an event that's hosting 7,000 people and getting everything right and and presented in a way that, that people are happy you know, when they come. So that, that's a big event type atmosphere that you have to, you have to know that you can do it. So I knew I could do it. And I had the, had the farm, had a desire to stay on the farm and keep the family farm going. Uh, so all those things work together. And I was going to outdoor festivals, uh, Philly folk, folk festivals, one of the closest that I can remember thinking, well, I can do better than this, you know? So, <laughs> but it, it did take quite a few years to get to the point where we had enough people there to make it so that I didn't feel like I had to go back to work Monday morning just to, you know, pay for the bills that I just had. So, but everything's going well now. Um, and it has been for quite a while. And in the, the, the beginning of this, how did you choose blues as the thing you wanted to base this on? And, and then how did you go about to choose a talent that you thought you could afford that would attract an audience to Nescapac, because it's kind of bucolic, 
it, I'm sure it wasn't on the festival circuit in the beginning, and you have to make people believe they should come to your place. It, it wasn't on the festival circuit because there was nothing happening there, but it is. we are close to New York and Philadelphia, so I uh, quickly learned that there are a lot of artists that are playing on the East Coast that are looking for other gigs, you know, so I would always wait till late in the, in the booking season so that I could follow where they were and figure out, you know, that I could get somebody that I could afford. And actually very lucky the first year we had Big Jack Johnson who really started us off on the right right foot, you know, and it, it actually propelled me to go f- further into the history of blues and, and go down to the Delta to uh, Clarksdale and, and uh, Bentonio and a bunch of places down there and sort of meet a lot of guys that I've had up since. So that that's one of the things that's been part of the, the festival since the start. But the, as far as the blues music, whatever music we listen to when we're teenagers, you know, when we're in high school is, is kind of the music that sticks with us uh, the rest of our lives. And it, the, the music I was listening to is very much blues based. I mean, literally bands like the Rolling Stones, for one, uh, Eric Clapton. Uh, Bob Dylan, even all the bands were, were going to listen to these old guys, uh, uh, Muddy Waters, who wasn't old then, but Muddy Waters and, and uh, Hallam Wolf and all those guys out in Chicago. And uh, so I think that's what made it. It made sense to me. And also there was already a, a, a lot of people out there listening to the blues. And I like those people made sense to me. So it just was something that worked very well. And uh, the audience is an audience that follow the blues and follow blues music. And I like the fact that there's a deep history to it, to blues. The audience that comes to Briggs Farm is, it's an amazing audience to me. There's just a really special vibe in that audience. There's, there's so much harmony. Um, there, there are so many people there who are listening very closely to that music. And there's so many people there who come out to dance and hula hoop and stuff like that. And it's just, there's something about, the people who come that I think also makes this festival just a great pleasure. It, that is true. It, it, it becomes a community, a, an audience, a group of people that large, and, and it's an enjoyable community. And I think the bands do their best uh, performance because of the audience uh, excitement about them. Uh, and And I know a lot of people don't even really know the bands when they come. So I, I do enjoy introducing them to bands that they wouldn't have ever heard of or, or different sounds and, and personalities that they haven't seen before. But uh, then on the other hand, there are people who know everything about the blues there. There are people that follow the blues from spring to fall and uh, all over the country, all over the world that that'll be there. Uh, so it makes for a pretty interesting time, especially you've been in the green room backstage. Yep, that's, that's a, it's quite a, a nice time back there and where you get to meet a lot of people in the business, you know, um, and also people who attend. It's a type of place where the artists will come out and sit and at a table and talk to everyone in the crowd or even walk around and and, yeah. and, and go back into the campgrounds and jam and, and things like that. So it's kind of a nice uh, open type community of people and musicians. It's very nice. And also with this festival, Richard, um, you've managed to strike a beautiful balance. And I know there are other festivals across yeah. the country that are that are large and um, they're they're like very restrictive and, and so on and so forth. But yours isn't as restrictive as other because you actually let people bring food if they choose and, you know, beverages if they wish, as long as they're in containers that are safe, or, you know, because it's in the grass and stuff. But 
that mm-hmm. kind of freedom has worked for you. And in other places, I don't know if it would always work for people. You know, there's, I always thought there were reasons why some of these festivals had such strident rules about what you could and couldn't bring in. But with yours, it's a little bit more relaxed. Yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, that that's just because of the farm family type, type atmosphere and all the people that work with us. Uh, they're, they're very friendly and open and uh, the audience picks up on that and they're respect, respectful. You know, they keep the place clean. Uh, we do, you know, have to remind them about the glass, but then when we tell them, they just weren't thinking about it, and, you know, so they, they'll work something else out. So, uh, yeah, so we respect the artist and we also respect the audience. And so we get so, sort of a mutual thing going. We, we just never have to tell people what to do or not to do. That is a great pleasure, by the way, is when you can go there and honestly, everybody is friendly. There's there's no tension. It's beautiful. And I bet you've had very little trouble over the years out there. No, we haven't. No. Yeah. That's great to it's know. It's usually if there's trouble, it's somebody having a little bit too much fun, you know, so we, we have to calm them down for their own good. But other than that, it's it's a good time. All right. And you have, the event is a little bit bigger this year you got a couple of days you started with what did you start with two days and yeah, then well, you kind of expanded yeah, and expanded. it's traditionally been uh two days friday and saturday uh uh and we just last year and this year decided to uh bookend both of those days so on thursdays just for the campers uh that, so that's a new thing uh camper that was always our biggest complaint from people is that it wasn't long enough. So especially the people that come in and set up their camp. So, so now they'll be waiting to come in uh, on Thursday morning and we'll let them in in the afternoon. And then we have a, we have a stage in the woods just for them. We'll be doing Almond Brothers music all night. And uh, then we also added Sunday. So Sunday we do gospel blues, which uh, that's a very special aspect of the blues. You know, it's always been part of that American music is and it uh, most gospel music has a, a very strong emotional attachment not not necessarily spiritual but um, emotional type attachment and uh, to people so it's been a perfect way to finish up the weekend and you have Alexis P. Suter and the Ministers of Sound, and they, they actually did a record out of your place, which is yeah, that was our... amazing. Oh, my goodness. I love her so much. She is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she's coming back again this yeah. year, and, and we recorded her. We started our record company uh, last year, or two years ago, uh, recording some of the special bands that we have there. So we'll be doing that again this year. And uh, so Lexus will be back for gospel. Lonnie Shields is doing gospel. And this is a guy that kind of hangs out for the whole weekend, right? Lonnie, Lonnie's been, yeah, Lonnie's like our family. He's he, But he grew up in Mississippi, or not in Mississippi, in, in Arkansas. And uh, his family had a band that went around to to uh, uh, hospitals and did performance for hospitals. So he's been doing spiritual gospel blues since he was a little kid. So he's coming. He really wanted to be part of our gospel show. So he's going to be on the gospel show on Sunday. And uh, then we also have Thornhead Davis uh, on on the stage for Gospel Sunday. She's well known in Detroit, a fabulous voice. You have this great mix of nationally known acts. This guy, Slam Allen, my gosh, when he plays, he jumps into the crowd and plays his guitar in the crowd. That's wonderful. And we heard uh, John Nemeth and uh, the Blue Dreamers. We heard him already today. These are great acts. They come back year year, year in and year out. But you also have, and I, I think this is such a great tribute, because 
our area sometimes is knocked for being, you know, backward and whatever. But you have some people who are local and they are wonderful players. And I'm glad you give them the opportunity to take the stage, too. I think that's really a, a great tribute to you and, and them. Yeah, well, that that's something that, that we should all try to support is the uh, local artists because they're in our community and it's 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 just very good for all of us to have exposure to them. And, and I think that's something that's been growing. It's been coming back anyhow uh, due to the breweries and, and other venues around. Dustin Douglas is coming and we also have uh, uh, Miss Melanie. Uh, she, I don't know if you caught her set two years ago. I she, missed her. No. She's She's from uh, State College, and she uh, the last time she played, she had six standing ovations. She just has a, a tremendous attachment to the audience. And those are two acts that are on the, on the backport stage. And also uh, Ed Rendazzo and uh, Brett Alexander, Tony Halchek playing. Uh, their, their, the band name is called the uh, Minor Blues uh, when they all play together. So they are, they're a festival favorite also on the backport stage. Doesn't get much better than Briggs Farm, everybody. If you haven't been, I would suggest that you go because it is, is a very special time. And this is the 20th anniversary. So everybody wants to do it up big on the 20th. And Lord only knows what you're going to do for the 50th. That's going to be, it's going to be spectacular. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that was really special about this year being the 20th is that uh, I had, I really felt that I had to do something special for the lineup, uh, you know, and the only band that was still playing from our first year, uh, we had uh, Krypton City Blues Review, uh, Big Jack Johnson, and but the first act up was Phyllis Hopkins. Her band was was called Little Sister at the time, and so she was the first band up on stage. So uh, we managed to get her for this year. She's playing um, the opening act on the backport stage on Friday. We so love I Phyllis. That was appropriate. Love yeah. her. We we used to work together, and that girl can shred. So and I, I, she's also doing the national anthem for us because she is the first act up. She'll be doing the national anthem, and when I asked her to do it, she said, uh, "Just she had been on a trip to to Paris, and when she came back, she." started practicing the national anthem without even knowing why and so she was she was shocked that i asked her that's richard briggs founder of the briggs farm blues festival set for july 6th through the 9th in nescapec for more information visit their facebook page you're listening to special edition on intercom communications you're listening to special edition on intercom communications hosted by sue henry a Wilkes-Barre man's enthusiasm for history is contagious. That was evident recently when Councilman Tony Brooks hosted his spring tour of some of Wilkes-Barre's most prominent homes. Hundreds came out to find out about F.M. Kirby, Fred Weckeser, and the Stegmeyer family. Situated along River Street in Wilkes-Barre is a line of blue historical markers that motorists probably zip by on a daily basis without giving much thought. Brooks discussed the historic past of that green space and one of Wilkes-Barre's most famous citizens who became a well-known painter. So you are on a battleground right now where battles took place, where people fought and died for property and what they thought would be their colony and then later state. And if you look at these blue historical markers and um, a large stone marker, well, it's in the trees, you can't see it, that says to Fort Durkee, and we're going to walk by one to Fort Wyoming. And these were the two forts where the Pennsylvanians and the Connecticut's 
set up camps literally a thousand feet from each other <laughs> and bat and battle it out so this is really you know a, uh, a a battleground how many people actually ever take the time to stop and read these blue stay historic markers right i hope you don't do it in the middle of the street <laughs> that's why they put red lights right i always find it funny because you go by so fast you know um, the State Historic Marker Commission actually makes a bumper sticker. I stop for historical markers. <laughs> you can get it. And I actually served on the, a couple terms on that committee that makes those markers. And we review selections. And the, the years that I was on it, there were 60 to 70 different people, organizations, groups would submit, communities submit, and only about 15 would make it. And there are about 2,800 markers across the Commonwealth. Wilkes-Barre has 20, and our most recent one was for the last two recent ones was for the Baltimore mine disaster, and then the founding of mining engineers, which is placed in front of uh, where Guard Insurances, where they had their first uh, uh, their meetings. But there's one right here between the trees to George Catlin, and in my estimation, George Catlin is our most famous export, who is revered in the art world today. George Catlin was born here in Wilkes-Barre in Public Square where the Dunkin' Donuts is today in, a, in a, a little log cabin in 1796. His father, Putman Catlin, was one of the first of four attorneys in Wilkes-Barre when the county was formed in 1786, Luzerne County was formed. And George Catlin was first gonna be a lawyer. Um, he went off to law school. If you were living in here, you were living here at the time, you usually went to school in Connecticut. That was like the homeland. So at that time, lots of Yale graduates are in this area. And Litchfield had a law school called the Litchfield Law School. It doesn't exist today. But so everyone would go to Yale or Litchfield for, for their schooling. Callan goes to that. He gives up the law, though, because he really has a different passion, passion for the art, passion for painting. And he moves to Philadelphia to go to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, institution that still exists today, they have a beautiful building on North Broad Street by City Hall. And he becomes a portrait painter of wealthy Philadelphians at that time. This is the 1820s and 30s. But he gets also caught up in this wonderful stories that start coming from the Midwest and the West. Lewis and Clark go west and survey all this land and write about it in the newspapers. And as a young man, George reads this stuff and gets very fascinated in wanting to see this. And there's this whole movement in America. You heard the expression, go west, young man, right? And people would start to go. And George Catlin got swept up in exploring Indian culture, Native American ceremonies, their religions, their sporting events, and their people. And he painted them, painted portraits of chiefs, portraits of their women, portraits of them hunting buffalo on horseback, portraits of or paintings of buffalo as well. And he becomes like really the very first of his era to do this. And he does it in a time period that was absolutely perfect because if he waited 10 more years, they'd all be gone. One of the sad parts of our history because either we shot him or you died of diseases and we just kept pushing them. But luckily, he was at the right time to record historically their lives and what, how they looked. And he amassed 500 paintings. And usually when an artist has a body of work completed, 
they go on a tour, they go to art galleries, they show off their work, right? And George Catlin does this. He goes to New York, he goes to London. Queen Victoria sees his work uh, at Piccadilly Circus. He goes to Paris, France. Imagine taking 500 paintings with you <laughs> in 1845. He lands in Paris in 1845. He brings, a tri he brings a family of Indians with him, kind of like a gross version of show and tell, right? But people are fascinated. I mean, imagine Europeans seeing all the feather dresses of a very exotic, to them, oriental-looking uh, people. He does this show in Paris, and he gets the notice of the King of France, who says to him, you know, I got a really big museum. Would you like to show him there? I'd like you to have your paintings come to the Louvre. How many people have been to the Louvre? Kind of amazing that a boy from Wilkes-Barre gets a royal invitation to become the first American to have a large-scale exhibition at the Louvre. That's pretty cool, huh? A very fascinating story. The King of France and George Catlin meet at the Louvre at opening of his show and they have a conversation. And the King says, George, where are you from? And George says, I'm from Wilkesbury. And the King says, oh, I've been there. <laughs> 1845. How in the world could the King of France say, I've been to Wilkesbury? Wilkesbury. Yeah, he would say, Barret. <laughs> How many people know Wyalusing? What's in Wyalusing? French Asylum, right? Marie Antoinette was supposed to go to a French aristocrat refugee camp in the middle of the woods in northern Pennsylvania. I don't understand that part of the story. God bless the people who did. Well, if you were part of the aristocracy in Paris during the revolution, you were worried about pretty much one thing, right? This. <laughs> Keeping it attached. You got out of town really fast, right? Because you're going to lose your head. Young guy named the Duke of Orleans, he's 19 years old, leaves Paris, he goes to England, Southampton's the big port, takes a ship called America to Philadelphia. This ship, by the way, America, is owned by a guy named David Hayfield Cunningham. You ever heard those names? You ever heard of Hayfield House? Right? This is the, Cunning, the father of the first Cunningham comes here. Completely a coincidence. Uh, the Duke of Orléans gets to Philadelphia. He sees a guy named Robert Morris. He's the financier of the American Revolution. Remember, we got a lot of money from France and arms that broke their government, actually. He says to the Duke of Orléans, hey, go to Wilkesbury. Go see my buddy Matthias Hollenbach. He's arranged for, I think it was 1,200 acres up in northern Luzerne County. Bradford County didn't exist at this time. Go see him. Go check on this land that we're getting for you're a little click to come to the middle of the woods. <laughs> well, the Duke of Orleans comes here to Wilkesbury, comes to exactly across the street where Star Hall is today to a tavern owned by a guy named John Arndt. And Wilkesbury turns out and has this huge party for a young little French aristocrat, 19 years old, the Duke of Orleans. Lord Butler is there, Matthias Hollenbach, the whole council, everyone just shows up uh, for, for this thing. He gets on a boat, not a boat, I'm sorry, a horse, goes all along the banks of the Susquehanna to go check on this land. This duke then gets in, essentially invited back to Paris because there's another little dictator that gets the French throne, <laughs> Napoleon, right? And he says, oh, I won't cut your head off, come back, right? And they do, and he comes back. Well, what happens to Napoleon? He has his Waterloo, he goes off to Corsica, comes back, he goes off to Alba dies there and when he 
leaves the French imperial throne, the Bourbon throne comes back in Louis XVIII. Louis XVIII is short-lived. Charles IX comes. And then a guy named Louis Philippe ascends to the French throne. And he was the Duke of Orléans here in Wilkes-Barre in 1796-7 that meets George Catlin in 1845 and talks about his Indian paintings and says, hey, I've been to Wilkes-Barre. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting, right? Small world to connect all these little dots. When you go on that courthouse tour or you go on one of my courthouse tours, I will show you in the dome of the courthouse in the rotunda, there are two presidents, a founding father and George Catlin. But what I think is so fascinating is our courthouse is built in 1909, right? And they say that a public building is the civic index of the character of the people who build it. So we thought very highly of ourselves in 1909 to build such a magnificent gem of a courthouse. And in this courthouse, we decorate it with our local history, our local art, and we pay homage to two presidents in our dome, Lincoln and Washington. We pay homage to a founding father, Benjamin Franklin, who, by the way, was president of Pennsylvania when Luzerne County was formed in 1786, and then we put a local boy up there because that's how much we thought of George Catlin in 1909 to put him with presidents and Ben Franklin. I wish we say to think the same of him. I mean, we, I know there's a certain class of people in the art world that does, but I really hope that you will tell your kids and your friends and your neighbors about this guy from Wilkes-Barre who was born on Public Square had an exhibition at the Louvre, and he was the first. Those on the tour also learned about the man reared on Franklin Street in the expanding city, who gave the world one of its most important financial instruments. So after, after the Civil War, Wilkes-Barre starts to expand south of South Street. And there are, in our archives at the Historical Society, records from the city where um, Barnum, had this farm and if you know there's an alley over here called Barnum Place. So if it's after the Civil War this is when this neighborhood starts to get developed and the houses at the time start to get closer together because the demand for housing is high because we don't have cars yet so everybody who's living downtown is also walking to work or they have a carriage and they'll have a carriage house in the back to to keep their uh, to keep their horses uh, as well. This was a very successful project to renovate and rehabilitate houses by an organization called CityVest, who got a bad name later with Hotel Sterling. But prior to Hotel Sterling, they were very successful in uh, restoring these houses, which were completely dilapidated. Um, you can see right through to the roofs of them. Uh, and they started to come back at uh, 2003, 4, 5. But there's a great story of the guy who built this house. So a guy named Charles Morgan builds this house. And he's in the hardware business. Not too fancy, right? He builds this house in 1890. He hires an architect named uh, J.W.H. J.H.W. Hawkins. Hawkins is the guy who built Hotel Sterling, designed Hotel Sterling. So he's get, doing some fancy houses around. But in 1898, Charles Morgan has birth, he and his wife have a son named Walter Morgan. And Walter Morgan goes off to Princeton University, graduates in 1920. And in 1928, he comes back to Wilkes-Barre and hits up all his relatives. His uncle is in the, also in the hardware business. His nieces, his nephews also live on West River Street. I'm gonna show you another one of their houses. And he raised $100,000. 1928, $100,000 is an awful lot of money. 
He takes that $100,000 and he invests it in a, in a new financial instrument called a mutual fund. And he gives the name to this mutual fund after the Duke of Wellington. He calls it the Wellington Fund. Anyone ever heard of it? It still exists today. It's now owned by Vanguard. And the Wellington Fund went from $100,000 in 1928 to right now on today's market, I checked it, $99 billion. And it started here. You know those blue historical markers that you see around Wilkes-Barre all over the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, right? That undoubtedly qualifies for an historical marker. So it takes a year process. Hopefully one day we will have an historical marker to that fact that the Wellington Fund, the genesis of mutual funds, start right here in Wilkes-Barre. The oldest house in Wilkes-Barre sits on River Street, but it didn't start there, according to Brooks. So welcome to the oldest house in Wilkes-Barre, the one obviously behind me. This is very indicative of what we would call Connecticut Yankee-style architecture, the first settlers that come to Wilkes-Barre. And if you look at it from the front, you could you see the, a very small version of the 44th Meeting House, right? Uh, this is what all the houses looked like in Wilkes-Barre. And in 1858, I have a copy of, uh, of a book that I bought on, on eBay, a little travel guide to Pennsylvania that's put out by the railroad because the railroads want you to take their train to go see cities and they make money. So they would have a little travel guide. And in 1858, they described Wilkes-Barre as a Connecticut, New England town in the middle of Pennsylvania, where all the houses are white with green shutters and flower gardens in front and white steeple churches. That's pretty nice, right? Now that's 1858. What happened after that? So everything changes after the Civil War because of coal. Uh, and obviously we just knock all these houses down. Now here's the interesting story about this house is it's moved. It's not its original location. When Zebulon Butler, a name that I hope you know from the Battle of Wyoming, came to Wilkes-Barre, he is the definitive leader of Wilkes-Barre. He's the military leader. He's also the political leader. He gets elected to be the town moderator. So he's kind of like the first mayor before we even have mayors. He buys lot number three, which was on the corner of, uh, I'm sorry, lot number four, at the corner of Northampton and South River Street. Zebulon Butler has a son named Lord Butler, a wonderful name. I'm sure he was pompous. <laughs> he gets it because his mother's maiden name was Lord. So Anne Lord marries Zebulon Butler. Boom. They have a son named Lord Butler. Lord Butler ends up having 13 different political offices. The first office he held was by virtue of having his father appoint him to be the quartermaster of Fort Wilkesbury. We call that nepotism, right? It's something we haven't seemed to shake in Wilkes-Barre and Luzerne County. <laughs> Lord Butler becomes the first chair of the town council. So he's one of my predecessors. Then he becomes the second mayor of Wilkes-Barre, which we called in those days the Burgess. He becomes the first sheriff. He becomes a county commissioner, the Terry, the register of wills, and a state senator. <laughs> Holds all these offices. And he has this wonderful house, this house, but at Northampton and South River. He gives birth to a young lady. He, gives, he actually has uh, 10 kids, but one of his girls 
marries a Woodward. And they, his name is Stanley Woodward, he's a judge, and they decide, you know what, let's get rid of the old house and build a big magnificent mansion. And they do in 1868. But instead of totally demolishing the house, they take two-thirds of it and move it. They, and if you, or if we're in the front, one of the hallmarks of Connecticut and New England architecture is symmetry. Right? You'll have the door in the middle, and you'll have one, two windows, right? You go upstairs, it's all symmetrical. If you look in the front of the house, you have the door and just one side of the house. So you have the center hallway and one third of the house. So two thirds of it is moved here in 1868 and has been here ever since. That's Wilkes-Barre City Councilman Tony Brooks leading a crowd on a recent walking tour of the historic downtown. Stay tuned for more on future shows. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.